You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Hey there, Monster Talkers. Karen and I are pleased to announce that we're joining the Airwave Podcast Network. This is going to lead to more regular release schedule, which I know many of you have asked for for a long while. And I can tell you that for the first time in our history, I have a backlog of recorded episodes and a published release schedule for us to work from. Stand by, because we're going to be attempting to be bi-weekly and regular. Let's see how we do. If all goes well, we'll be on an every other Monday schedule, and we're very excited at that prospect. And if you heard ads at the start of the show, then you're already getting the new feed. It may take a little while for all these changes to trickle in, but I've been working very hard behind the scenes to make sure all the nitty-gritty work is being done to make this happen. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. In this bonus episode, we're far adrift from the science show of our tagline, but we're definitely into monsters. We're going to be hearing from Mike Mason at Chaosium. When I got to college, a friend of mine told me about the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft. I may have been one of the only one of my friends to come to this game from already knowing his work. But soon, 
We were all saying the nearly unpronounceable names of his pantheon of monstrous otherworldly evil and rattling off the titles of imaginary books or forbidden knowledge. In short, it was a wonderful primer for my lifelong pursuit of understanding the strange and mysterious kinds of stuff that I don't believe in, but sometimes wished were true. Maleficent fish people and subterranean dog-faced ghouls aren't real, but they're the kind of evil you can fight without ambiguity of purpose. Sure, it's just a game, but it was one that valued research over brash action. Surely it's clear at this point that a huge chunk of the findings we talk about on Monster Talk come from me trying to make a successful library role in real life. And my struggles for sanity also feel very true to the game. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this bonus episode while we finish up preparation to fully join the Airwave family of podcasts. You'll hear more about that soon, but for now, let's get to the Monster Talk. Today we're talking with Mike Mason of Chaosium, the gaming company that makes the role-playing system most near and dear to my heart, Call of Cthulhu. Mike's promoting the newest version of Chaosium's monstrous bestiary, which is called the Malleus Monstrorum. For the 7th edition of the classic game ecosystem based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft and all kinds of Lovecraft-adjacent horror. So welcome to Monster Talk, Mike Mason. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Yeah, hi. Hello. So (laughs) it's nice to talk in person, finally. So you are titled as the Call of Cthulhu Creative Directory at Chaosium. Is that right? Yeah, that... that I guess that translates into uh, a number of things. I, I look after the, the Call of Cthulhu game line for the company, and I have various hats that I wear. So I'm kind of the lead writer for the game. I'm also a commissioning editor. Uh, I also commission an art director as well. And uh, I also get involved in uh, looking after the property in, in licensing terms. So you know, we license the Call of Cthulhu game out to foreign translation and other companies to you know produce great material to support the game as well as um you know add on and support kind of play aids and things like that but equally you know we're involved in in licensing in terms of some of the properties that we use in the game whereas you know whilst lovecraft himself is uh well pretty much all of his material is in would be considered to be in the public domain you know there are writers that are still living who have contributed to the mythos who we you know we like their what they've done and we want to include that in the game. So you know people like Brian Lumley and uh, Ramsey Campbell, uh, who obviously you know their, their material is obviously copyright. So we you know we we license certain uh, aspects of their you know Cthulhu Mythos work to include within our kind of you know Cthulhu Mythos game. So kind of licensing both sides of it in that sense. I think it's funny. I, I, I thought I was being super clever by I have a question towards the end of what I have planned here to talk about Ramsey Campbell and Brian Lumley. And I was so proud of myself. And now you've you spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, well, yeah, I'm sure you I'm sure you can still uh, I'll recover I'll do my best to answer. <laughs> so I have lots of questions for you. Now, some of these are coming from me as a host of a show about monsters, but some of them are just because I've, I have probably played more hours of Call of Cthulhu than any other role-playing game, I would, I would imagine. And I've played a lot of role-playing games, but yeah, it was, it was one that I felt, rel- I felt relatively safe playing because I was living under these weird rules. My parents were fundamentalist religious people. They didn't want me playing Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that. And uh, I felt like Call of Cthulhu was 
pretty much not like that. It was quite different. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I was skirting the rules, but I described the Malleus Monstrorum as being kind of like the monster manual. But since some of our listeners are not role players, maybe we should introduce this hobby. So what is Call of Cthulhu and how is it different from sort of fantasy role-playing games people might have just sort of picked up from in culture in general? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the starting point, I guess, is, you know, what is a role-playing game? And that is very much, a, in one sense, it's a, a shared story. There is normally one person who kind of runs the game, who's maybe like uh, the referee, you know, gets called various things by different games in Call of Cthulhu. They're, they're called the Keeper in Dungeons and Dragons. They're the Dungeon Master. But it's the same kind of role. You you guide you guide the story along and uh, present various scenes, encounters, and characters to the players in the game. And the players in the game, they all take on a character. Now, in Dungeons and Dragons, that might be a, you know, a fighter or a, a wizard or, or whatever it may be. But in Call of Cthulhu, you'll play a relatively regular, normal person in a kind of a, a version of the real world that we live in. So uh, in Call of Cthulhu, if you're playing in a, a modern day or the 1920s kind of classic era, you could be playing a private detective. You could be playing a librarian, a, a taxi driver, somebody who works in a store or an office. They're just regular people. And some of them have you know, expertise in certain things, like a, a librarian is obviously going to be pretty good at, you know, digging out information while a private eye may be great, uh, you know, getting uh, getting information off the street and using contacts. Or you may be a scientist and, you know, your expertise is uh, physics and chemistry. And so you play kind of regular folk in Call of Cthulhu who are, who are basically dropped or presented with dramatic and wild situations they are drawn into and normally that's uh, through some sort of mystery starts off as a mystery maybe somebody has gone missing or uh, uh, the museum has been broken into and an item has been stolen and as a player characters you you are kind of brought into the mystery to try and solve it basically and as you get deeper into the mystery finding clues and information normally at the heart of the mystery is some sort of you know, horrific alien horror from the Cthulhu mythos. And that could be a, you know, that could be a bunch of humans who are kind of worshipping the alien gods of the Cthulhu mythos and working as a kind of cult to, you know, cause something bad to happen. Or it could be a, you know, the appearance of sort of a, a monster, you know, from uh, from the spaces between the stars has appeared on the earth. And, you know, you've got to try and deal with it. And um, the big difference between Call of Cthulhu and many other kind of games that, that are more fantasy-based is, in the fantasy games, you know, you're pretty, you know, most of the time pretty well equipped to take on monsters and, and normally kill them in some regard and steal their treasure. Whereas in Call of Cthulhu, you're playing fragile humans who are, you know, who aren't, you don't get more powerful in terms of their hit points and strength and all that kind of thing. They all stay the same because, you know, like in real life, my my health doesn't go up as I get older. It, 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 be, it gets worse. Um, yeah. So um, it kind of mirrors that kind of sense of reality, I sense, I guess. And so um, heading into a big fight with these, you know, horrors from uh, Lovecraft stories and so on is, is normally a very quick way to get yourself killed as a character. So the game kind of kind of presents to you uh, options to sort of say, well, you know, is there another way you can deal with this monster? Maybe 
you can't kill it because it's immune to bullets and and fire. So maybe you've got to think around other other ways to you know deal with it, which could be you know banishing it with maybe trying to find some magic or something that could maybe banish the creature or or, or destroy it. Uh, maybe there's some sort of uh, special warding you can create or find that can kind of imprison it so at least it's not a problem anymore so it kind of gets you to think on your feet and and present you with kind of information to try and come up with you know novel ways to deal with these problems and sometimes sometimes you can't deal with them and you just have to do the best you can and and sometimes the best you can is to run away well, and hope <laughs> you can find something down the road and come back later to deal with it i mean you know anything's possible and then, you know sometimes you know if it's a a bunch of you know human cultists well maybe you can you know uh, subdue them all in a combat or maybe you can uh, uh, get them embroiled and implicated so the uh, the police turn up and arrest them all for you or whatever it may be but um it's it's quite different from your kind of average fantasy kind of game in that you know you're not these powerhouses of lots of spells and you know magical swords you know you you are just regular humans and you know dealing with the hand uh, you you've been dealt really yeah, I keep as a as a fan of the H.P. Lovecraft fiction. So many of the stories end up with the protagonist about to die or having gone mad, and it's like it's like it's really rare that there's sort of a an explosive finish. And I, I guess maybe Shadow over Innsmouth might be one, and even that one doesn't really end that way. But there is that scene where the Navy comes in with the big guns. Of all the Lovecraft stories, they probably the the Dun the Dunwich Horror. It's probably the closest one in terms of uh, what I call a Cthulhu scenario might look like because you've got uh, you've got a big kind of uh, you know monster on the roaming around on the loose and and the guys can't you know they just can't deal with it in terms of fighting it so they turn to these old tomes of arcane lore and they find this kind of banishing spell and they you know they get together and they try and cast this spell to kind of banish the creature. And that's the only way that they can really deal with it. You know, to take it on any other way would uh, would probably just mean they, they they all get eaten or something. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because, I mean, sort of when I started playing Call of Cthulhu, I was enamored of its setting in the 1920s in the f- sort of flapper era. And I knew I was familiar with Delta Green, but I hadn't played that. And now... Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's like a separate gaming company, or is that, that that's not actually part of Chaosium, right? The Delta Green stuff, right? That, that's right. Yeah, originally uh, Delta Green was originally um, a setting and source material for the Call of Cthulhu game. It was done under license by a company called Pagan Publishing, and uh, that was some years ago. And over time, what the guys at Pagan Publishing uh, did was to kind of basically design their kind of own version of the game that they, you know, they wanted to kind of uh, create around the setting that they'd made, which is a very much a modern day setting where you are playing in this kind of government conspiracy dealing with the, the, the you know, cosmic horrors and so forth. And so now it's become its own kind of separate, separate game and is, uh, you know, unconnected to Call of Cthulhu in that way. Although there is a lot of historical crossover. And indeed, you know, whilst Delta Green is sort of set in the modern day, you know, the materials can be used in Call of Cthulhu, and likewise, some of the materials in Call of Cthulhu could be used for Delta Green. It's, it's, it shares a common heritage, I guess, in that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, because, I mean, at the end of the day, Call of Cthulhu is a very generic game system. As you say, the kind of classic 
period of play for most games is that kind of 1920s 1930s era with the uh, you know the roaring 20s so, because it's very evocative and and fun to play in but equally you know the the rule book for call of cthulhu uh gives you everything you need to play in the modern day if you want to if you want to do it in the modern day and we have supplements for setting the games in the uh, in the wild west in victorian europe and england we've even got one for the uh, the dark ages uh, you know around 900 uh, ad and uh, so you know it's a very versatile system in terms of being able to adapt to different areas of play and um because the beauty of the cthulhu mythos is that it exists across time so wherever you are the horror still lurks in the darkness kind of thing <laughs> exactly and i can you talk a little bit about going insane? Because I think one of the mechanics that I think most people who've played the game find to be most distinctive is this sort of sanity mechanic and the role around does seeing this stuff drive me mad? Yeah, most, uh, I mean, Call of Cthulhu was kind of the, you know, certainly the first game, you know, kind of that got a lot of press about it that um, that went beyond a character having hit points, having life points in a sense, and it has a uh, it has those, but also every character has sanity points, because as you know, if you read the kind of the the fiction the game is kind of you know it, it derived from the kind of Lovecraftian stories, as you said earlier, where the kind of protagonists in the stories you know they don't normally necessarily die, but they they kind of uh, they go they go insane through the contact they have with the with the alienness, the cosmic horror of the Cthulhu mythos. And so the sanity mechanic kind of mirrors that literary aspect and it kind of signifies the the corruption of the human, you know, the human mind by the Cthulhu mythos. And so as a character encounters the Cthulhu mythos in its various shapes and forms, you actually lose sanity points. And at certain at certain losses of sanity points, they can trigger they trigger madness in the character. And there's a, a thing in the game called a bout of madness where a character kind of, you know, effectively a player loses control of their character temporarily for a short time. And uh, the character does something, you know, acts out of character and does something potentially risk, risky and harmful to themselves and to their, to their comrades while they're, you know, while having faced some horror from the, the Cthulhu mythos. And ultimately, just like if a character loses all of their hit points, their character is effectively, you know, physically dead. If they lose all of their sanity points, they are they become permanently insane, and they have they're basically crossed over into the uh, the light of the Cthulhu mythos, and they they become effectively true believers in the mythos, and effectively become you know cultists and, and believers. Who, who are, you know, the I guess the, the the enemies of the player characters that way. So you can start with a character who could end up becoming an enemy at the end of you know some point down the down the road, basically. Yeah, that's it's uh, it's very much a the Cthulhu mythos is a humanity can learn and can get great power from the Cthulhu mythos, but its touch is burning, and the more you hold on to it, the more it burns away your humanity, basically. I have to say, as as someone who's done decades of paranormal research even as a skeptic and a non-theist i i think those give you some defense but this stuff does have an impact on your mental health i really believe that it's like i think if you keep peering into the abyss yeah maybe the abyss looks back and what i've noticed is the abyss is often wearing a nazi uniform it's really weird <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know what to make of that, but yeah, no, I, I, I think this is a good mechanic. I really do. Having played it so long, I, I just find it wild to, to read about groups that have had uh, decades long Call of Cthulhu gaming campaigns. I, what, You've probably run into this. What what's the longest you've ever heard of someone having a continuous gaming group? I, I, I know people who who have you are still running a campaign that's been going on ten years or more. The norm, you know, most most campaigns, you know, tend to run six months to two years. That's kind of an average, I guess. If you're running a long form kind of version of the game, the beauty of it is is that even though your character may die, they can pass on you know, their knowledge and uh, to a new character, you know, you, you can bring in replacement characters effectively. It's like, um, like in a horror story, you know, you, you've got so far in the investigation before, before the horror catches up with you, but, you know, you've diligently made, you know, been filling in your, your diary and your journal with everything you found. And, and now you uh, leave that inheritance to your nephew Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, the the World War One vet who's come in to find out what happened to his academic uncle. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that's it. So, uh, so you get a lot of longevity through characters and their and their replacements. You know, uh, again, it's a kind of style of game that you and your group want to play. But I mean, Cthulhu can be it can be a lot of combat in it if that's the kind of style of game you want. However, there are many groups that you know combat happens very very rarely, and if it does. You know the players are shrewd enough to kind of run away and not get involved, and so you know, live to fight another day. There are you know ways to mitigate that, and in fact, there's a um, we have a supplement called Pulp Cthulhu, which basically takes Call of Cthulhu and, and really kind of injects the kind of the pulp kind of ethos into it. Kind of like if you want to kind of do a more kind of Indiana Jones style kind of uh, version of the game, and so the characters in that are tougher. They are they kind of like double the hit points and. Uh, they have access to kind of special talents and things like that. So just to make them a little bit um, larger than life. And so they, their survivability of those characters is, is, is greatly enhanced in that way. However, you know, given the nature of the game that it is, it's a horror game, uh, they can still go insane and they can still die if the right, you know, the right or the worst things happen to them in that sense. But uh, yeah, character longevity is, is a, is a kind of very flexible thing in Call of Cthulhu because we're talking about campaigns, but the game also plays really well as a, a one-shot kind of game. If you want to kind of do like a run a one-session, one-evening kind of game that's a bit like a horror film, you can do that. And so the characters, is, you know, the characters are all ultimately disposable in in the sense of the story, uh, and you're trying to you know survive the longest and uh, get to the end and reach a conclusion within the within the time scale you've got. So, which is a very kind of different style of play to the campaign style, but it, you know, it accommodates both of those things. Absolutely. I, I was thinking about like campaign wise, I've only run a few campaigns. I've, I've done most of mine as unconnected one shots. Although I did have one player who kept playing the same character, which I really loved, which was a, a reporter character named Scoops Malone, whose signature move <laughs> was to whip out a camera and do the flash bulb. You know, so he he never got a news story with a good photo, but he always like used the flashbulb to escape the monsters, which was a lot of fun. Fantastic, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, absolutely, good fun, good fun. So, how does this book, the Malleus Monstrorum, fit into the gaming experience? Is this something that the players are supposed to read, or just the keeper, or how does that work? Well, it, <laughs> it's um, it is a kind of a source book for the game. You don't, you know, it's not it's not a 
while we'd call it a core source book, it isn't. You don't need it to play the game with. It's a it's additional material to help, particularly the keepers uh, who run the games and design the games. But it does have a dual use, even though um, it's not necessarily something that players of the game would necessarily need to get. It is a useful kind of book for people who are interested in the Cthulhu mythos generally, even if they don't play the game. Um, even though it's a, you know it's a game book, the material in there, the background on the the various kind of monsters and alien deities of the Cthulhu mythos, um, it provides a kind of you know a, a, almost like a coffee table kind of book of art and and information on the background and lore about these kind of uh, creatures. So that's on one sense a kind of a much more kind of general kind of thing that people you know are interested in this kind of thing would find you know be of interest too. Uh, but predominantly, it's, it's a um, I, I think of it as like a toolkit for people who run Call of Cthulhu and who who design scenarios for their groups. And um, it's a two-volume sort of set that comes in a, a, a lovely slipcase. And the, the first book details all of the the kind of the monsters of the Cthulhu mythos. So if anyone's kind of familiar with some of those things, like the Deep Ones of Innsmouth and the uh, the Shoggoths and the Migo, which are all kind of creatures that are featured in. Yeah, Lovecraft stories and many, many others as well. Others have come and been invented for the Cthulhu, uh, Call of Cthulhu game. Others that come from some of the other writers of the mythos. So Ramsey Campbell, Brian Lumley and uh, uh, Robert E. Howard and, and uh, Clark Ashton Smith and all these other writers who were you know, either part and contemporary with Lovecraft or, or have you know, built on those original kind of uh, fictions you know, up to the present day. So that's book one. It's very much a collection of monsters. There's also a lot of guidance on how to use monsters in the games, how to present them, how to make them scary, um, and also how to design your own monsters and your own versions of things. And that's all kind of in book one. And then in book two, it looks specifically at all the kind of the, the Cthulhu mythos deities, the alien gods, the the great old ones, the, the outer gods like uh, Neil Ephotep and uh, Azathoth and great Cthulhu himself. And uh, it presents the uh, it presents con- con- contradictory and variant views on all of them. So within one write up of uh, say Great Cthulhu, there's you know contradictory information really in terms of what humanity knows because there isn't a canon to this stuff and there isn't a you know agreed upon narrative. This is all you know through the lens of rumor and speculation and mystery, and um, this is kind of in a, in a fictional sense, it's a kind of the co- a collection of disparate voices who all claim to know what Great Cthulhu is, and none of them actually do know, and the, and no one can prove it either way. So it's a it presents a range of ideas that uh, keepers can draw upon to inform their own kind of presentations of the game, and also inform them you know, in terms of helping them to design you know uh, stories and narratives for. You know scenarios and campaigns, you know, for their own groups in that way. So it's a a big a big collection of monsters, basically. Yeah, and hopefully, uh, you know, you can use them in game. You can use them. You know, if you're a um, if you wanted to know more about the Cthulhu mythos because you wanted to write for it, or you're a an artist, or or you just you know want to sit there and, and and kind of enjoy the kind of the background of the material, it serves that purpose as well. 
Yeah, it's 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 very comprehensive. It's and it's I love the art in it. Do you can you want to talk about the that won't really translate very well into a podcast, but it is <laughs> it is quite good. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the art? Yeah, sure. The art is all been uh, it's all been done by one person, a French artist who who is called uh, Loïc Musi, and uh, he's been working with us for some time. And I kind of asked, would he? Would he be interested in just illustrating everything? And uh, he kind of jumped at the chance, and he has um, illustrated. Uh, you know, not every single monster and so forth is, has an illustration, but uh, obviously many of them do. And um, he, Loic has, uh, you know, done a range of you know uh, full color and grayscale pieces for the books, and um, kind of um, trying to show you know, some sense of, you know, visually what they look like, but but obviously doing his own kind of uh, spin on it as well, because uh, I, as I tried to say in the books themselves, when a human sees something from the Cthulhu mythos, they may see something slightly different to the person standing next to them, because um, they may be multidimensional, and you only see certain aspects, and your mind latches onto what you can make sense of. So you might see a a snake-headed wolf, and the person next to you might see some sort of giant, you know, crocodile with uh, the head of a bird. I don't know. You know it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking, like, right, We especially, like, with the with the great old ones, where the, whatever you see is what they're physically manifesting here, it's not them. You know, it's not like a Dungeons yeah. & Dragons where you fight a dragon, and, wow, that's a really tough fight, but when you kill it, it's a dead dragon. You know, if it's a manifestation of an entity's intelligence from another dimension, and when you kill it, it just turns into vapor and recoalesces, or maybe at best you banish it for X amount of years or weeks or whatever. <laughs> it's, yes. it's a little yes. different. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is, and that, and that, and the books go into you know some length in the introductions to try and um, you know present that in in understandable terms and in and in practical terms for the game itself as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. The how humanity interacts with the with the Cthulhu mythos is is quite key because obviously that's very much the nature of what the game is about. Yeah, I was thinking about the pulp version. Is the pulp version designed to extend into the present day as well as the sort of nineteen twenties? Yeah, I mean, it, the, again, the core setting is around that kind of nineteen thirties era. However, the whole book, whilst based in the thirties, is presented in such a way that you can. You know, use it wholesale for whatever version of the game you want to play in. So, yeah, you could use it modern day. Uh, equally, you could use it, um, you know, in the, in the gaslight era of Victorian England. And, and and obviously, it does work pretty well with the uh, Down Darker Trails Wild West setting, you know, where you've got, um, you know, dueling pistols and quick draws and all that kind of thing that kind of, you know, fits very well in that pulp vein. So yeah, it, it works across the uh, the game and its uh, kind of iterations. Outstanding, and I, I know as a business you have to be concerned about keeping track of your intellectual property and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, Lovecraft himself worked collaboratively and supported so many writers, and seemed to freely allow his creatures and sort of approach to this kind of fiction to be shared. That I think. I know you've got a responsibility to, you know, focus on intellectual property protection, but at the same time, I love how the game lends itself to incorporating monsters from films you just saw or 
horror stories you just read, it's like it's super handy to have a book full of all those monsters. But I, I found that the game's uh, setting itself allows you to create almost any kind of horror sort of scenario if you wanted to, whether it's connected to the mythos directly or not. But I'll, although I do have a, a bias towards the mythos. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, 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 at the very heart of the game, it's a, it's a, you know, a horror role-playing system. And if you want to you know, not use the Cthulhu mythos in any way and you want to focus on you know, uh, what you might call traditional folklore monsters like you know, werewolves and vampires, well, you can do. I mean, you can set up a... You could you know, do, do a version of Dracula or whatever horror film you want to name or, or, or fiction and use the game as a vehicle to do that and uh likewise you know you want to create your own your own kind of setup your own kind of mythos then again you know the game you know can accommodate that and does and uh in fact we we recently released a a new campaign for the game called the children of fear written by a colleague of mine lynn hardy and uh that is set is set in the 1920s and it's set across China, India, and Tibet. And in the introduction to that campaign, it presents the kind of you know who's who's the uh, who the uh, villains are of the campaign. You know what's what's the uh, what's the secret you know uh, behind it all, and you know what's actually going on that the players have got to discover. And it actually presents it in a number of options for the keeper. And you can do a Cthulhu Mythos option, you know, and uh, and that's kind of spelled out. But equally, you can play it without any Cthulhu mythos involvement and just focus on the kind of the esoteric law of that particular, you know, of the cultures in that particular region and play it as a kind of like, like an occult horror rather than a Cthulhu mythos horror campaign. So, it, yeah, as I say, it is a, it's a versatile kind of setup to allow you to kind of ultimately tell the stories and play the kind of games you want to play. And as you say, you know, it doesn't have to be mystery horror. You can do it as survival horror. You can do a kind of, you know, Walking Dead zombie apocalypse kind of version of the game if you want to. You can do the, you know, One Night of Terror in the Haunted House. You can, you know, whatever kind of version of horror, psychological to shock horror, you know, the game kind of copes with all of those things. And it really comes down to the style and type of game you and your friends who are playing it want to experience, really. And it can be, you know, very safe horror can be very kind of child friendly and it's kind of almost like a Scooby Doo game to, you know, to a much more gritty, dark kind of version of the game with, you know, particularly on the cosmic horror side of things that is, um, you know, much more psychological in that sense. And that will all vary on who the players are and, as I say, the kind of game they want to share together. Ultimately, though, it is a game and it is meant to be fun, even if the fun is being scared or the fun is. You know, pretending to be scared. You know, it's uh, it is it is a game at the end of the day, and um, you know, if you're not having fun, then you know something's not quite right. So you know, we do <laughs> emphasise yeah. that you've got you know it should be an enjoyable experience for whatever for whatever you're looking to get out of it. You know, that's hopefully what you're going to get out of it. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti, and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Obviously, I don't have any real metrics on this, but I've noticed over the course of the last year with the pandemic, a lot of people have been doing online gaming has has business been okay for you guys or how how have have gamers been making their library insanity roles online yeah yeah absolutely there's with the pandemic meaning obviously people couldn't get together and face to face around a gaming table like you know traditionally you know you do a role-playing game that way everyone has kind of just gone online and and the um the number and rate of online role-playing has uh skyrocketed over the um over this last 12 plus months, you know, that's Call of Cthulhu, but also the other games we do like RuneQuest and, and you know, and other gaming companies, you know, D&D and so on. Uh, you know, I think everyone is kind of, you know, at the end of the day, role playing for most people is, a, is, a, is you know, a, certainly a, a, an important hobby for them. And, uh, you know, whenever, whenever bad things happen in real life, the one thing you try and hold on to before you let it, you know, before it goes is, your, is the, the hobby you love and what you do with your friends in that way. And um, so people have found ways to do that online, either using a a purpose-built kind of role-playing platform like uh, Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds and, and so on, or just using Zoom or Skype to do a, an audio-only game or a video, you know, an online video game or using Discord. There's so many ways to do it. And, and because Call of Cthulhu isn't a kind of a tactical combat game, you don't actually need to have a, a battle map and you know and representational miniatures to move around on the screen it's the theater of the mind it's the it's telling you know a a kind of a a shared fiction and so you know just your voices and or or, you know just you know your your faces on the video screen and um you know does the trick really and it works really well for call of cthulhu in that way so so yeah we we, we've had a we've had a good year you know uh we continue to to sell books and and pdfs and so on and more people you know uh, continue to pick up and play the game and um in fact we we recently um 
well, we already knew this, but we got it. We got it recently reconfirmed, actually, that we have a, a partner in in Japan who uh, is a licensee and produces the you know, Japanese translation of Call of Cthulhu, and has been doing so for quite a few years now. And um, we we're blown away to find out that Call of Cthulhu is the is the biggest role playing game in in Japan. Wow! And there are and what's even cooler is that actually the majority of people that play Call of Cthulhu are are women in Japan. There's more women playing role playing games Call of Cthulhu than than there are males. Which in in North America and England it tends to be you know the other way around. But um, the female female gamers are, are you know are, are certainly the majority. For Call of Cthulhu in in Japan, and um, the number of people playing the game far outstrips pretty much the entire world combined in terms of the number of people that are really into it in in Japan. Uh, but that, you know, but that's the same South Korea as well as Europe. You know, France, Spain, Germany. They've all got very healthy communities of Call of Cthulhu players, as well as obviously you know the UK and and uh, North America and Canada have got uh, you know significant numbers of people who get together every week or every month and you know fight the good fight against the horrors of Cthulhu and so on wow have you by any chance seen the new movie Demon Slayer I haven't no no so this it's an anime film my kids just went nuts for the the anime series which is streaming online I don't know there's there's one season of it but they made this movie and and it's a fascinating world it's like set in turn of the century 19th to 20th century uh japan and there's a secret core of demon slayers who are fabulous swordsmen with magic swords who are hiding among the sort of 1915 1910 1915 japan hunting down demons all the demons derive from a single demon who's infecting people and it's kind of vampiric in nature but this movie is about the protagonists of the cartoon series hopping on board a train. And then on the train, a demon exists on the train that's using the ability to send people into a dream world and then fight them in their dreams to suck out their life force while they're sleeping. Oh my gosh, it is the most disturbing Lovecraftian thing I've seen in years. It is amazing. And uh, and the visuals fit right into this milieu. Uh, I, I, yeah, highly recommend it. Although I don't think the film would make a lick of sense if you haven't seen the first season of the show, but it's getting, okay. it's getting incredible ratings, but I could totally see how this would fit right into a campaign. And I, I've yeah, personally, I mean, uh, I've done, um, homebrew scenarios based on like, uh, Evil Dead 2 and, uh, Army of Darkness, <laughs> which I think would probably... Probably those would fit into the the pulp world, I guess, considering how indestructible Ash is as a protagonist. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly, certainly that, that would work really well. What's what's making me smile about the uh, what you've just been describing about the the Demon Slayer film? It sounds really cool. I would definitely have to check it out. It reminds me. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's it's somewhat different, but you know, there's a there's an epic campaign for Call of Cthulhu which is called Horror on the Orient Express. Exactly. Where, yes. Where yes. you uh, you know you journey on the Orient Express in the 1920s across Europe, and uh, and towards the end of the campaign, you know the the monsters and so forth they're, they're on the train with you, and and uh, there is a there's a, certainly an episode in that campaign where you uh, I think there's a couple actually where you head into the land of dream and have you know nightmares and uh, what happens in those nightmares can uh, can affect you. Uh, so there's a you know some 
some similarity and crossover there, which which you know kind of strengthens the kind of the point that um, there may, maybe is some really cool inspiration to be had from the film to to bring into games as well. So that's that's uh, yeah, that's interesting. I am fascinated. I my children they they've done some tabletop stuff, but a lot of their free time they spend playing. I'm gonna air quote role playing games on online chat forums where there's no rules it's everybody's basically yeah. doing freestyle and i'm like you guys don't understand the bit of, the rules are awesome i mean <laughs> you know they they have to deal with the occasional player who wants to be overpowered or whatever but i i just i am fascinated where even without a rule set people seem to just come up with role playing as a natural form of play i i think so i mean i i think i think that's really true and i think it comes back to you know, I I I I I keep saying this. I I know, um, but it is a shared story, and I think it goes back to that. You know, for most of us, we enjoy stories, and you know, storytelling is a is a tradition and an art form that goes back, you know, to the very beginnings of humanity in this way. And I think you know, role playing is just a a different iteration of the same kind of will to tell stories. It's a and it's uh, as you say that kind of shared to- storytelling experience. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need rules to do it, as you say. It does help when you know when you do get into those arguments about whether you know who hit who first. But um, but you know the rules just give it kind of uh, some structure. And um, but I think ultimately it's about you know we love telling stories and we love you know to to collaborate and uh, give each other a sense of wonder scare each other amuse each other and all of these things you know come out of storytelling but they're also you know they they also they also come out of role playing too so i think they're connected in in that way there's some sort of root level yeah i think so i mean i I, i've described in my own work uh, how important narrative is to literally every culture like there's elements that are repeated inside those cultures uh in their own different sort of idioms but the storytelling process itself seems to be a very human thing. I don't. I'm not aware of any culture, and I don't know that you can have culture without story. I mean, part of part of a culture is like the boundaries around that culture are defined by stories. So uh, it, it's a very human thing to do. But I like how role playing games give a structured sort of play area uh, with, <laughs> even if the story itself lends itself to madness and chaos like within the within that sort of boundary area you've got rules that you can use within a gaming system to sort of help the play be and i think without the rules you couldn't have collaborative storytelling that's what really helps i think is people contribute to the stories using the rules to sort of keep any one single player or person or role or keeper from sort of messing things up if you will that, well, that's right. Yeah, no, it, 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 it creates a level playing field, and also to kind of reiterate what you just said, it, it, it creates a safe space. It's a safe space to tell a, a shared story, and um, you know, and particularly in the genre that we're that we're working in, which is you know horror, a safe space is, is, is can be important. You know, you're, you know, as I, I, again, I reiterate, it's a game, and it's meant to be fun. It's not meant to, you know, we're not looking to, uh, you know, terrify you, the person. We want to terrify your character in the game, but you as a person, we want you to be having fun while your character's being terrified. We don't want you to kind of leave the game, you know, uh, comatose from shock or anything, you know. So it's a, it is a safe 
you know, a safe space, a safe environment to to tell a horror story, or you know, or what, whatever that might mean to to each group. Yeah, do you, Call of Cthulhu is. And I'm going to ask you to be a historian now. I don't. I don't know if you have looked into all of this, but my understanding is Call of Cthulhu is based on the basic role playing system. You mentioned earlier the yeah. uh, Avalon Hill. Well, I, I think of Avalon Hill, but the uh, uh, Rune Quest, and uh, I'm also thinking of Superworld. Which, uh, yep. uh, if people don't know Superworld, there's a new TV series about wild cards uh, being made, which is a book series also from George R. R. Martin, the guy who did the Game of Thrones series. And unlike Game of Thrones, characters in wild cards tend to die. Go ahead. It is all circular. It is all circular. Yeah, so, so RuneQuest is a, a fantasy role-playing game that on one hand looks a little bit like Dungeons and Dragons, but on the other hand is totally different. It's very much based in mythologies and things like that, and uh, and is and is set in a very detailed game world called Galantha. And in fact, you know, Chaos in the company was set up by Greg Stafford originally in the seventies as a way to publish his Galantha stories through games. And uh, you know, in fact, the first game we ever produced was a board game set in Galantha, and then. RuneQuest, a role-playing game, followed. And then in 1981, around Halloween, which will be 40 years old this year come Halloween, Call of Cthulhu came out. And they are all of our games, you know, traditionally have been modelled on what is called the basic role-play system, BRP. And so they all they all work on a, a percentile-based dice system, a D100. So, you, you know, your characters have skills. So say, you know, you can climb a wall at 70%, you roll a percentile dice, and if you get 70% or lower, you've climbed the wall okay. There's no problems, basically. And uh, so it's quite an intuitive system because, you know, we all understand percentages in terms of saying, well, I'm, yes. I'm only 10% good in driving my car. That means I'm probably not that good about driving, not very good at driving my car. So it's very intuitive that way. But it all, it all um, yeah, it's all kind of based on that basic role play system. And, and each game kind of takes that core system and then kind of, remodels it for the uh you know the mechanics needed for a certain style of play so the rune quest mechanics are very much more about combat and using you know characters using magic and shamanistic magic particularly in in the game world whereas call of cthulhu is more about investigation and running away and and uh occasional magic use but the magic is very different to the the magic you get in the fantasy world so they all kind of have a, a common heritage, but uh, go their own kind of ways with it in terms of the uh, in terms of the game system. There is always something so peculiar about Glorantha, though. It's like one of the most brutal and realistic combat worlds to feature talking fantasy ducks. I think out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that, that's 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 what the true uh, role of chaos within the Glorantha yes. world. Is. You know, what's, yes. what's what's more chaotic than a talking duck? It's, 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 it, I think it's got analogies to that line. Who is it that said, uh, you know, if, if you woke up one morning and your cat and dog started speaking to you, uh, you'd go mad. I can't remember who said it now. but that, it's, Someone it's, wise, because it's totally true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, Lovecraft has kind of had a cultural bump lately. Uh, I think a lot of people are at least name aware because of the mm-hmm. HBO series Lovecraft Country, based on the novel by Matt Roth. Do you think that had any impact on the sort of uh, growth of the gaming community? 
I, maybe I don't. I have to say I don't honestly know. I, I think back in the eighties, the uh, you know the Call of Cthulhu game and the films of you know like Reanimator and Prom Beyond did a lot to kind of oh yeah awareness of you know Lovecraft stories. I think you know that tends to be common common wisdom you know on the academic side in in terms of you know how Lovecraft fiction and Lovecraft circle have become better known and the kind of you know the Cthulhu meme in terms of you know. Cthulhu plushy dolls and that kind of thing. I think they had their start in the early ages, but certainly I think this new bump, which I think is is brilliant, in the last few years we've because I mean we've had this bump in kind of almost in reaction to Lovecraft as a you know make no bones about it as a man in the nineteen twenties and thirties uh, he was you know he was a racist and um, some of his fiction you know is unpleasant in that terms, but you know like like many you know historical fiction writers we can still you know enjoy the stories and the ideas in terms of what you know the creativity and the positive side of that that work um while still you know understanding that the the actual person that wrote them is somebody you know you probably wouldn't walk around for dinner in, in that way and certainly uh you know lovecraft's no different to people you know uh robert e. howard and so forth who may have had views we wouldn't necessarily just you know agree with these days uh, or even then, really. And um, so this kind of bump with Lovecraft Country, uh, we've seen, you know, new voices and a really kind of diverse set of voices really now coming to kind of respond to Lovecraft. Yeah. And so that's new energy to it and new light on, you know, some of the original kind of material and the ideas of the Cthulhu mythos and really, you know, opening that up for a wider audience and interpretation. So, you know, not just Matt Ruff, but we've had Victor LaSalle who did uh, Laval, the Laval, Laval, yeah, yeah, the Ballad of Black Tom. I I have to say about yeah, Victor Laval. Um, I don't know if he still listens to the show, but he used to at least listen to the show, and he included he kindly mentioned us in a New York Times review, which I just absolutely love. Oh, wow. But the yeah. Ballad of Black Tom is such a beautiful retelling of the horror at Red Hook, flipping yes. everything on its head. It's so good, yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, of that, and uh, I just think you know it's high time that you know a, a, a wider selection uh, of diverse voices, you know, not only in fiction and, and new media like you know TV series and films, um, but also you know um, coming into role playing. So we, we're very, you know, I work with a number of people and encourage people to you know write for role playing games who come from you know. Uh, different cultures and different backgrounds to me certainly uh, who can bring you know uh, new eyes and new uh, new thoughts to the not only to the game but to the you know the heritage of the game and the scenarios and campaigns so so you know I think that's all you know it makes everything stronger and and you know great and interesting to be honest so uh, I think um, you know more the merrier in that way I think you know another thing that's happened recently was the Stranger Things which made uh, at least during season one uh dungeons and dragons was a big part of the show are you disappointed yeah. or annoyed that everybody in fictional media only plays D? you never see traveler or riffs or yes. gurps or call of cthulhu <laughs> or any of like the many many other games out there there are many many other games and uh yeah it, it, i mean you know sometimes it's just the easy uh it's the easy banana to pick isn't it the Dungeons and Dragons is synonymous with role-playing games because it was, you know, the first in that in kind of public uh, consciousness. However, um, yeah, it'd be nice to see, as you say, Traveller or 
Call of Cthulhu or many other games getting some representation as well. I mean, it's not a direct thing, but I mean, even like the popularity of the Fallout series after Fallout. Well, it, they, those were all pretty GURPS derivative. I mean, you know, so I it surprises me so many people know Fallout but don't know anything about GURPS, for example. Oh, sure, sure. So weird. Yeah. No, I mean, the thing is, the, the thing is, with role-playing games is... Um, is a very vibrant and uh, diverse hobby in that sense of, you know, there's whatever genre or kind of things you want to kind of explore within role-playing that is out there or or will be, you know, whether it's a very kind of light kind of, you want to kind of do a kind of a, a Studio Ghibli kind of style of game, you know, with an anime kind of sensibility, there's a game for that. There's, you know, there's... Uh, well, welcome to My Neighbor Nyarlathotep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, or, or you're uh, into kind of you know UK comics, and you love Judge Dredd in 2018. Well, there's a there's a game for that as well, and and you know there's there's a bit of everything everywhere, and uh, it's just finding your it's finding your niche and what you know what you enjoy most. Uh, but it, you know, but uh, all of us into role playing, we all we all end up playing many different types of games, and you know we normally have our favourite or the one we always come back to, but. Um, you know, there's many games to try, and uh, it's you know it's just cool that you know at the moment that you know a lot of people have been you know trying out new games and, and continuing campaigns because of you know online play through the pandemic, and um, it will be great, and hopefully you know people will continue to play and people will continue to to come to role playing and enjoy you know, enjoy a bit of fun, which is uh, like I keep saying, what it's all about. <laughs> it is, and, and I think this is a great way to get started. So if someone wants to uh... Pry out the Malleus Monstrum uh, with their gaming. What's a good way to get started with the sort of Call of Cthulhu system? What do you What do you recommend people begin with? There's two routes of entry really into into the into the game. There's actually three, but I'll, I'll mention the two key ones. The obvious one is we make a box set, and it's called the Call of Cthulhu Starter Set, and it does exactly what it says on the box. It's a starter set. If you've never played Call of Cthulhu, or if you've never role played before. It will take you through three books that have come in the box set, and it will take you how to how, what is role playing, how to play the game, how to learn to game. Until by the end of the box, you will be able to run the game for your friends. And in fact, the first book you open is a solo choose your own adventure. So you start, you can go, go home, open the box, and you can begin playing on your own straight away. And as you play that adventure, it will actually teach you the rules as you play it. And it's it's a really cool it's a really cool little adventure. Some uh, slightly reminiscent in some parts of the Wicker Man, and uh, so it's very very cool and fun. But it basically that box will will really set you up and um, uh, really get you you know to enjoy the game and hopefully you know something that you want to continue further. Uh, the other way to do it is even cheaper than that. We have a quick start, call it a quick start rule set, which is a small booklet that you can download for free from chaosium.com. That will give you a kind of the basic rules and uh, and a single adventure for you to, you know, to run for your friends. And um, you know, if you're already a, a role player, but you've just not tried Call of Cthulhu before, then I would point you at the quick start because it's a very cheap and um, easy way to just give it a, a kind of a taste for the game. If you're newer to role playing, I would certainly suggest the uh, Call of Cthulhu starter set, and because uh, that will that gives you everything you need to get going. Really, beyond those, uh, there's the 
the Call of Cthulhu Keeper rulebook, which is the actual main core rulebook of the game, which is the, the foundation of everything else beyond there. And then on from there, there's numerous supplements, campaigns, adventures, um, settings, and so forth. And uh, the Malleus is, you know, one of those support books for the uh, for the game. And um, they're all available through, you know, uh, from Kersen.com or your friendly local gaming store or your online retailer like Amazon or wherever. And uh, they're all available. The, the beauty is if you buy from Kersium or your or drive through RPG, uh, you can buy the physical print of the books or the PDFs. But if you buy the physical print, you get the PDFs for free as well. And so it's kind of an added uh, an added value thing there as well. But, um, you know, if you just want to know a little bit more before you dive into anything, then uh, chaosium, chaosium.com uh, is our website. And there's information on our pages about Call of Duty, what the game is, what's it all about, what you can get, and uh, free downloads and all that kind of thing. And uh, it's a good, you know, just a good place to sort of dive in and have a look, really. Outstanding. So uh, now I don't know if you've listened to much Monster Talk, but our uh, signature question that we ask guests to finish out an interview is this. What's your favorite monster? But I, I don't <laughs> want you to feel constrained, like in any way to like limit yourself to the, the Cthulhu mythos. Although I should have mentioned, I, we didn't mention it. The book includes cryptids as one of the categories of monsters. So you could, which I think, by the way, I should mention here, is extremely appropriate considering that Lovecraft's uh, Migo, which is a beloved monster for Cthulhu, uh, called Cthulhu players, uh, the Migo is actually a word used to describe the creature we call the, the abominable snowman, like it, it, the Yeti. Like, like that's actually from Lovecraftian writing. So that's that's kind of an impressive tie-in with the world of cryptozoology. It certainly is. It certainly is because yeah, in the Malleus there is um, you have the Migo, the kind of the alien monsters that Lovecraft was kind of talking about, but we also, as you say, in the cryptid section, have Sasquatch and Abominable Snowman as well, because um, you know, and uh, we have you know spooky black phantom dogs and corpse lights and all that kind <laughs> of. But, By the way, yes. I noticed that your black dog had one eye, which reminded me of the uh, Usborne book of uh, ghosts, which also included a. <laughs> <laughs> you know me so well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna answer your actual question, and it's gonna, it's gonna relate in this in this wonderful whole circle of life that I think you're gonna appreciate. My favorite monster is just the talking mongoose. Oh, oh, which oh I yeah. First <laughs> I first learned about in the Usborne, you know, world of ghosts and, and strangeness. Ooh, me and, too. Um, <laughs> and I've always been fascinated by Jeff. Uh, and I know, cause I, you know, I do, I do listen to the show and I know that you, you know, you know who Jeff is and, uh, and uh, you've talked about the Usborne books and so on. So yeah, it all kind of circles back for me to that as well. And um, I'm, I'm holding in my hands, Jeff, the strange tale of the extra special talking mongoose. Have you have you read that? The, I have uh, not read the whole thing. I've read pieces. This is by Christopher Joseph, right? And he was on yes. our show. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I need fantastic. to set aside some time and actually finish the book. But yes, yes, it is. Well, obviously, the most complete look at the topic, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think uh, I don't think there's any stone he didn't unturn in the whole uh, all of the research for that. So. Uh, 
It's, it's so funny you would mention this because for me, the great mystery of uh, Lovecraft is whether or not the character of Brown Jenkin from Dreams in the Witch House is so reminiscent of Jeff. I just have to wonder, it, it, it happened at the right time. It could have been based on Jeff. I just don't know. I, I, there's no proof that Jeff appeared in the newspapers at the time in Providence or in that area. So I, I just would love to know for sure if, if Lovecraft was inspired by that. I think, um, I mean, yeah, I, it seems so plausible that it was. I mean, as you say, there's no, no one as yet has found any evidence to say that it definitely was. But I think in my heart, I, I'd like to think that possibly it was because it, it just seems so, you know, such a natural link between the two. Uh, and and just wouldn't it be cool if that was actually the case? So I choose to I choose to believe it was. I, I that that is lovely. It, it it would make perfect sense. It would it would just, it's kind of fun to imagine Lovecraft uh, reading a newspaper account or listening to the wireless and hearing a story of it. It's just like uh, knowing he overlapped so heavily with the uh, Nendor Fodor and uh, Price Harry Price. It's like the, yes. yeah, the, yeah. The, those guys. Both of those guys would have fit right in with his uh, stories. I think. I think that would have been a problem. well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I finished reading the uh, the book, and uh, I was actually going to a uh, a games convention the following weekend, and I wasn't sure what to run. So I just I just ended up running a version of Jeff the role playing game for Call of Cthulhu uh, for this session. I, I didn't. I actually changed it from a mongoose to a to a strange squirrel like creature. I didn't. I didn't call him Jar. Just. I had it on the Isle of Man, but I just didn't, you know, I just changed some of the names and, and so forth. And, uh, but this had it convoluted into the Cthulhu mythos for, for the game. And uh, that went pretty well. It was great. It was good fun. And, um, yeah, it kind of gave me the idea for a book that uh, we're going to bring out, not yet, but down the road. Uh, yeah, basically... it, it's, it's not a big jump from the Vorish sign to the Voiry sign. So, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> We're going to do a collection of Call of Cthulhu scenarios, you know, using the premise of folk horror and kind of, um, you know, where the Cthulhu mythos may be involved, but it's it's a kind of a watered down version almost, and is much more focused on the kind of the tradition of you know folk horror. Uh, so whether you know Jeff might make some sort of appearance in that, perhaps who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens. I, <laughs> it's so fun because it's like uh, just that sort of. 1920s, 1930s venue, like for for as far as a, a role playing world, you get rid of so many of the things that ruin horror later. Like like you know, so many people position their horror in the 1980s, so there's no cell phones, right? I mean, just, sure. just that little kind of thing can sort of break things. But yeah, Lovecraft was working in like modern. He was almost writing sci fi at the time. Yes, and, yeah, he, uh, he was writing contemporary. For himself, and um, I mean, I always say, you know, don't don't fear the cell phone and modern technology. Embrace it in the horror, because whilst you know, I think in one sense, you know, having all your characters having cell phones, it's great because it means they can they can all keep in touch, and that's wonderful because that actually helps to speed things along, keep the game moving. But equally, you can use the phones and the internet to to create horror. You can, absolutely, you know, when the phone rings, yeah. And some some strange voices on the end of it telling you things they shouldn't know about you. Uh-huh. That's pretty scary. It so- is. And the, the Japanese <laughs> are doing the best job at that lately, it seems like to me. Just taking technology and just making it absolutely terrifying. 
things they're doing with cell phones and, you know, a call comes in from a number you don't recognize or a, a, a website you don't understand. They, they're, they're doing a lot of things in, in Japanese horror to sort of uh, remind you that technology is no protection against the chaos of the universe. And I think that's a lovely <laughs> Lovely message. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that fits the game perfectly. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, (laughs) I don't want to keep you all day, but I, I really love this book. It was lovely. I, it, it's gotten me fired up to pull out my gaming books and give it a shot. I haven't played in a while. I almost always end up being the game master, but I, you know, I think it was second or third edition talked about the importance of the onion when you tell a story, yeah. like no matter what you dig down to, if you think you've reached the bottom, you're wrong. That's just the next layer of the onion. And I've always taken that to heart with my uh, uh, homebrew scenarios. I, I just love it that people can think they've solved things and they've only scratched the surface. And that's, that's fantastic. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's the, uh, that's the kind of core advice we still have in the, in the, in the, in the rule book about, you know, your mystery is an onion and, you know, each clue, takes away one layer but there's always a layer beyond it exactly you know, so, there is no bottom yeah <laughs> you get deeper in the, the the revelation and the horror just gets deeper and harder and and more more uh more frightening yeah so, uh, yeah no, it's a great it's a great little tool to, to 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 think about when you're running games so yeah well i hope i hope you do get a chance to uh to you know put the gaming hat on again and uh even you know do a little bit here and there and yeah. uh, certainly um you know uh the the lack of um you know venues and physicality is certainly not a hindrance these days and there's uh plenty of um you know role playing game forums online and sp- you know specific ones for whatever game you're looking for and certainly the ones for Call of Cthulhu where you know people um will post you know I've not been playing for a while I'd love to join the game is there a one shot and the, the community is very welcoming and very supportive. And um, I see numerous people kind of you know, wanting to give the game a try or just get into it again and uh, posting up and they, 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 they're inundated with invites to, you know, do you want to come and play my game tonight or, or whatever it may be? So, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, a lot of opportunity to just give things a go without, you know, without getting too deeply involved and just to, you know, test the water as it were. Uh, and certainly, I'd, you know, uh, recommend you know people just give it a go if uh, if it sounds if it sounds something that they would be interested in yeah, so. absolutely and i <laughs> it, what we'll do is obviously we'll put a link to the malleus monstrorum in the show notes as well as the starter kit and some of the other material you have where would you like people to like uh link to you want them to go to the chaosium site or to drive through rpg or amazon or where, where? Yeah, just just if you send us uh yeah uh, com is is a great place to start and uh you know we've got presence on twitter and facebook and i'm on twitter and facebook and so forth so so yeah wherever wherever you go whether it's chaosium.com or or you find your way to us through drive through or wherever it is um we all interconnect. We are like the old ones. We are, we are all interconnected. <laughs> and uh, You will find us out eventually. All right. That's fantastic. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today on Monster Talk. I really appreciate it. And you're, you, you know, uh, what year did you join Chaosium? Uh, I, um, I've been, uh, uh, where is it now? Uh, seven years I've been, I've been full-time at Chaosium looking after Cthulhu. Uh, prior to that, I worked freelance and worked for other games companies. But uh, seven years, so uh, 
Uh, yeah, seven years. But I've been I've been playing it since since it came out in about 1981. So yeah, uh... wow. So I, I think I, I think I picked it up in '88 myself. I think that's when I yeah. started. And uh, but I had read Lovecraft long before that when I was in middle school, and which is and I'll I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. People ask me well, if you're going to start with Lovecraft, what do you what do you think the best book to begin with is? And I always say a dictionary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but oh, once you get beyond his uh, his vocabulary choices, I think uh, there's a lot to be enjoyed there. So uh, and and this game is a great way to take that enjoyment to the next level and make it part of your own imaginary experience, which is just so much fun. So. I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you for all you guys do over there. I really, it's just so many hours of fun playing Chaosium products. So I, I really appreciate you guys talking to me today. Oh no, it's it's been it's an absolute pleasure, Blake, and, and thank you very much for uh, the invite to to come on and uh, you know talk games and Cthulhu with you. It's uh, it's uh, a privilege. So wait, uh, thank wait, you very wait, wait. Much. Did you actually answer the question? You went with Jeff the Talking Mongoose, didn't you? Okay. Cool. I did go, yes. I yeah, yeah. Jeff, all right. So, whew, whew, okay. Just making sure. <laughs> it was like, all right. No, fantastic choice for sure. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks again. It's, it's been uh, lovely to talk to you. And, likewise. Uh, likewise. I'm, I'm a big, I'm, I'm a fan of the shows, you know, so uh, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure for me to just shoot the breeze. So, fantastic. Well, this has all been good stuff. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll get to the UK as well. It'll happen. I, I'm sure of it. All right. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Well, take care. And uh, I hope we speak to you again soon. All right. Sounds good. See ya. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today, you heard an interview with Mike Mason of Chaosium discussing the new two-volume monster encyclopedia for the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu. Links to the books and many other things that we talked about are in our show notes. Check them out. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support we have links there to our patreon page as well as a donation button another great way to support the show is to buy books from our amazon monster talk wish list which directly helps us with our research we love used books very much so don't feel compelled to buy new ones and we love kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other and finally without spending any money at all you can support us by leaving a positive review at itunes or wherever you get your podcasts Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for listening.
This has been a Monster House presentation.